You know, on Friday, I was at Canadian Tire, and I met Patrick and his daughter Charlotte there. And uh, Charlotte turns to me, and with these huge saucer eyes, she says to me, Oh, I can't wait for for summer day camp. It's going to be so awesome, she says. And I'm just like, I love this. This is what I love about summer day camp. These kids get so excited about it. And they just have a ball. And, you know, I often ask the kids, so what's what's the best part of summer day camp? And what do you think they say? What's the best part of summer day camp? Do you think they say, like, oh, it's the snacks. We get to eat these amazing food. And they do. They eat amazing food. Or maybe the, 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 the crafts, you know, the, the, the amazing crafts. And they do amazing crafts, you know. <laughs> it's really cool. Or the games. Or, you know what they usually say 90% of the time? The Bible stories. What? Now. Oh. Now, I get it. They're pandering to me. I'm asking the question. They know on the Bible story. So, you know, like, don't let it get to my head too much, okay? But it still is amazing to me. And when I watch those kids, they are in rapt attention when I tell Bible stories. They're just glued. And, you know, like, you know, they, they give me this manual of how to teach the Bible study, you know, to the kids. And I, I often I'll read through it. And then I'll go like, ah, and I'll throw it away. And I'll get the Bible out, and I'll just read the story about five times. And then just tell the story. I don't, don't, like, I try to get it as close to the words in the Bible as I possibly can. And just tell the story. And the story itself carries the weight. It's powerful. It's God's word. It pierces into the heart and changes kids, changes adults, changes me. I think it works for adults, too. Do you think? Yeah, so I'm going to tell a story today, okay? Is that all right? I love telling stories. This is one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. It's kind of one of these showdown stories, you know? It's, it's kind of like, you know, Clint Eastwood, you know, in those Western movies, you know, he's three bad guys are facing him down, and he's got his six-shooter, and he's chewing on a little piece of straw, you know, and he's got that gnarly look on his face and the keen look in his eyes and his hands twitching a little. It's kind of like that. Except instead of being Clint Eastwood, it's Elijah. And instead of being three or four bad guys, there's 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. I mean, he's outnumbered 850 to one. Poor guy. He even says, I'm the only prophet left. Poor guy. I'm like, yeesh. Not much hope for him. If it was a shootout, he'd be done for sure, you know, 850 to 1. Um, now, the thing about a good story, a good story sometimes needs audience partic- participation, okay? So you have to think a little bit like a kid today. If I'm going to tell a kid's story today, you have to participate. So at the very end of the story, there's five words that all the people yell out, a five-word sentence. They all yell out. Now, I know what those five words are because I've heard this story since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And, uh, and it was actually, my dad would play a record player. I know some of you don't know what those things are, but they call them vinyl, you know. Yeah, it's, it's coming, having a resurgence. But anyway, it had this record player, and on it, it had the story that I'm about to tell. And so this story is like just drilled into my head because I've been hearing it since I was... <laughs> 
five. <laughs> and so I know what the last line is and what all the people shout, but we'll help you along. We'll put it up on the screen. But when you see it up on the screen, just shout it out, okay? Because that's your cue. And not the first screen, but the, the last, at the end of the, the, uh, at the end of the story. So this story takes place during a terrible time in Israel. In fact, the Bible says that King Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any other king before him. And he began to serve the Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple that he himself had made for Baal in Samaria. And, and Arab also had made an Asherah pole to worship it. And so he did more evil than all the kings before him. And you know, the people of Israel, they followed him into this Baal worship, into this pagan god worship. And his wife Jezebel was even worse. She set about to go kill off all of the prophets of the Lord. That was what she felt was her role. And so it was pretty disastrous time for Israel. Now, there were a few who were still fervent believers in the Lord God of Israel. And Obadiah was one of those few. And so Elijah goes to Obadiah, kind of freaks him out. It's another whole story. I'm not going to tell that story. But Elijah goes to Obadiah and arranges for a meeting with Ahab the king. And so Obadiah arranges it. He says, okay, we're going to meet this certain place. And the king, it comes from one side. And uh, the prophet of God comes from the other side. And soon as Ahab sees Elijah, he says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah responds, hey, not me troubling Israel. It's you troubling Israel. You and your father's household. You've been leading Israel astray from the Lord God. And you've been, you've been worshiping the Baals. And now, bring all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah and all the people of Israel to Mount, Mount, uh, what was that mountain called? <laughs> Mount Carmel. Boy, I should know my story a little better. Bring them all to Mount Carmel, and, uh, and we'll have a contest. And so, shockingly, Ahab does exactly what the prophet asks. He goes and sends out letters to all of Israel, and he invites all the prophets of Baal to come to Mount Carmel, and all the prophets of Asherah, and they all meet up on the top of Mount Carmel, and all the people are there. And so Elijah gets up in front of all the people, and he says, Now, listen, folks. We've been struggling for a while here. Uh, we've been kind of divided between the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, and the God of Baal. And so we, we need to figure out who is the real God. And the people were just like you, except for the one child speaking. <laughs> they, they were all quiet. They were just like silence, right? They didn't know what to say. And so then he says, so what we're going to do is we're going to take two bulls and we'll give one to the prophets of Baal and one I'm going to take. And we're going to put them on, we're going to put them on the wood and put them on the altar and get them all ready to be sacrificed. But we're not going to light the fire. Okay. No one's going to light the fires today. So we're just going to do this two, two, two groups. And, um, so then the, then the people spoke up and said, okay, that, that's good, that's good. We like this idea. And the, and, and the God who answered, Elijah says, the God who answers in fire will be the real God. 
and then we'll serve him and get rid of this other god. And the people are, okay, that sounds good. If, if one of these gods sends fire from heaven, <laughs> yeah, that would be good. <laughs> so the people are on board. Um, and so they all gather around, and, and Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, okay, you, you choose first. You know, there's more of you, so you go first. Uh, choose one of the bulls. And so they choose a bull, and they start crying out to Baal. Baal, send fire down on this altar. Baal, send fire down on this altar. Um, and the Bible says that it was silent. It was just quiet. There was no answer, no response. It almost seemed to me like maybe the wind stopped blowing. <laughs> you know, it was just like deathly quiet. That's the feeling you get there. And, and so, um, so it, this carried on for quite some time. And, uh, and then so Elijah starts mocking them. He says, hey, maybe, maybe you should crawl a little louder. Maybe he, maybe Baal's off on a trip somewhere. And so they shout a little louder. And then he says, you know, Baal, you know, maybe Baal's off taking a washroom break. Or maybe he's falling asleep. You gotta, you gotta wake him up. So they started yelling even louder and screaming out, Baal, Baal, please set fire. And then they started taking knives and slashing their wrists and slashing their arms and slashing their legs and blood was pouring out and they're saying Baal Baal please send rain I mean send fire from heaven send fire and they would get all excited about it but the Bible says there was not a sound there was no answer and this carried on into the afternoon from early morning all day long, they're dancing around, yelling and screaming and cutting themselves and making all this, these prayers to God. And then it says, when the evening sacrifice time came, Elijah said, come now to me. And he rebuilt the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And it says that he took 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you have to realize that, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel are not together right now. This is, this is the northern kingdom. This, the other two tribes are in the south, and, and the tribes are all broken up. But Elijah insists that the house of the Lord is 12 tribes. And he builds his altar with 12 stones representing the 12 sons of Israel because Israel is the name by which God chose his people. And then he lays out the wood on it and he chops up the oxen. And then he says the strangest thing. He says, okay, let's fill up four jugs of water and let's pour it all over this altar. Just, you know, to make sure I can't light this thing myself, I think, was the point. You know, so they pour four huge buckets full of water on this altar, and the water starts running down. And then Elijah says, oh, well, that wasn't enough. Do it again. And they do it again. And he says, oh, that's not enough. The, the trench I dug around the altar, it's not full yet. Pour another four jugs of water on They pour another four jugs, and finally the trench around the altar is full of water. And then Elijah starts to pray. Oh, thank you. That's very helpful. <clears throat> and I want to read what he prays. It says, 
At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of God fell from heaven, and it burned up the sacrifice, and it burned up all the wood, and not only the wood, it burned the stones up, and all the dirt around it, it burned all that up too, and it licked up the wire and sucked it all up into heaven, it's just like, kaboom, it's all gone. And, and then all, when all the people saw this, they fell down on their faces, and they cried out all together now, the Lord he is God. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Again, louder. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Oh, that reminds me of that record so much. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the people were ecstatic. And guess what God was doing? God was not just kindling a fire on an altar. God was kindling a fire in the hearts of the people that saw this amazing demonstration of God. They had encountered God through what Elijah had done. And a fire had started kindling in their own hearts. And they started worshiping the Lord immediately. Now, some people say, Bible is boring. What do you think? Not boring, is it? It is exciting. It's amazing. You know, I don't think so. Especially when you consider that God uses stories to speak to our hearts. And this story speaks to my heart in volumes, I'm telling you. You know, two weeks ago, we started this, this series, Rekindling the Fire. Right? Rekindling that, that uh, fire of God in our lives. And at the end of the message... People stood up indicating that their intention was to follow God and to seek that fire in their life and have God burning in their hearts as a, as a burning fire. And, you know, I think everybody stood up. And I, probably there was a little bit of peer, peer pressure involved, you know. You know. Well, of course we want to be burning for God, you know. Of course we want to be on fire. And, you know, eventually everyone stood up. But guess what? You made that vow in church before God. I don't care what your reasoning was. You made a vow that day by standing up and saying before God, I want to have the fire of God in my life. I want to be on fire for God. And so that's why I'm teaching this whole sermon series is because we, we don't always know how to do that. Like, how do I get that fire burning in my life? How do I get God to, you know, just ignite a flame under me and get me going and serving his kingdom and being passionate about the things of God? You know, we can be passionate about all kinds of things. You can be passionate about football games. You can be passionate about your work. But when people see that you're passionate about God, they kind of go like, oh, you're, you're a religious fanatic. <laughs> Isn't that true? You know? Well, go to some football game. There's a few fanatics over there, too. Doesn't, our society doesn't seem to have any problem with them. And so let's burn out for God. Let's be fanatical for God. Let's be a Jesus freak as, as that... The Newsboys song goes. Um, so this series is all about helping us 
get on fire for God and, and light that fuse again. But what I, what I, in this story, who lights the fire? Elijah, prophets of Baal, or God? God, pretty obvious. God lights the fire. Who lit the fire in the burning bush? Moses? God. Yeah, who, who, who lit the fire in the burning pillar of fire at night that led the Israelites to the wilderness? God. Yeah, you getting the picture here? Who lit the fire on the 12 apostles when the, when the Holy Spirit came into that room and, and there were tongues of flames on each of the heads? God. Hey, you're getting good participation today. This is great. So, yeah, God did it all. And guess what? God's going to light you on fire too. Amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. Yeah, God's going to light us on fire. It's, we often think like, oh, I got to burn brightly for God, so I got to work really hard at it. Yes and no. Okay? First of all, you can't make yourself burn for God. That's God's job. But you can prepare the way. You can get things ready. Now, can, can you imagine? Uh, what, did, what did Elijah do to prepare the way for God to throw down fire from heaven? Well, first of all, he was obedient. He, he says he did all these things because God had told him to do it at God's command. So he went and he was just obedient to what God had said. And he went off and started doing these things. And, and what, what were the things that he did? Well, he, he rebuilt the altar just the way it was prescribed to be built in God's command, the Bible. And he laid the, 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 uh, the bull on the altar just the way Moses had said. Look what, what he's... Next slide. Oh, well, yeah. Now, next slide. Now I'm, now I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, okay, so he did it at the time of sacrifice. What do you think that's a reference to? That's a reference to Leviticus where it says that you should have the evening sacrifice. Next slide. At twilight. For generations, this is to be a burnt offering made regularly. Guess how often this this offering had been made in Israel? (laughs) Well, I don't know. It's been a long, long time. If Elijah is the only prophet left, there's no priests of God at the time. Jezebel had killed them all off. This hasn't been happening. So what God told Elijah to do, I'm sure God had given him specific uh, instructions about this particular event. But many of the things in the event were already prescribed by God earlier. God had told them to have a sacrifice daily of a bull for the, for the sanctification of the, of the people, of the atonement of the people. That was to be a daily thing. So Elijah was sure he was hearing from God, but then he was doing it just the way God had prescribed in the Bible. And you know what, my friends? If we want the fire of God to fall on our lives, we need to do the things that we already are aware of that we're supposed to do, the things that are very obvious in the Bible. And, and, you know, I I looked at about a dozen messages on the fire of God falling— and uh, had a really hard time because my sermon became like 50 pages long. And I was like, I want to say all of this. And I had to kind of shrink it down to what I'm going to share today. But in all of those messages that I read and all the people that ever said anything, they all of them mentioned three prepar- 
preparatory things for the fire of God to fall. And they're not sort of outlined one, one after another in, in the Bible somewhere. But I think they kind of represent that wood, you know, like God's got to have something to burn. You know, Elijah just didn't say, oh, God's going to send fire on that tree over there. God's going to, no, he had to organize an altar, a sacrifice, something designed for worship. He organized that, and then the fire fell. And I believe these three things are sort of mandatory for us if we want to have the fire of God fall on us. And these are things that you've heard of a thousand times from the pulpit, like over and over and over. And so much so, you're probably just like, oh, pastor, not that again. But what are they? Well, the first one's Bible reading. You see, Jesus says that we need to have an intimate relationship with him in order to do anything. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can, you can do anything. Unless, these, my, unless you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can do nothing. So the only way that we can have the fire of God in our life is by hearing God's word. And by reading God's word and getting close to Jesus through God's word. If my words abide in you, it's about us abiding in Christ and Christ's words abiding in us. And the only way we can get Christ's words abiding in us is by reading it. I, you know, I was first impressed with these young ladies who went to North Africa to share the gospel. Not because they were so passionate about, well, that, that impressed me too, about sharing the gospel. But their Bible knowledge. They know the words of Christ. And so, don't expect God to throw down the fire from heaven if you're like, ah, oh, well, you know, once a week here in the pastor, that's enough for me. No, Jesus wants this personalized relationship with you. And, and sometimes we treat the Bible like, like it's a, a good luck charm, you know. So, oh, I got to read it every day. Did you hear the word I used? Got to. You know, that's the way we kind of come to it sometimes. Well, I got to do my thing. I got to have my devotions. And, and it's this little chore we do. Now, if, if I said that about meeting with my wife, well, I got I to gotta go home for supper because my wife wants to meet with me and I got to talk to her and I have to, you know, spend some time with her. You would start to think like, what's wrong with you? You know? And she would start to go like, what am I? You know, an obligation? You know? And it wouldn't work. God wants us to be intimately involved in this time with him. So, of course, I know I've been, I'm about to preach this message today and I've known it for a couple weeks. And so, you know, for a couple weeks I've been, you know, like... I better do what I'm about to say, you know? And so on, when was it? Thursday, I think it was. I was like, you know, I opened up my Bible to my regular Bible reading. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to say that you really got to, you know, ask God and, and interact with God over this. So I did that. I opened it up to where I had been reading. And, and I put my elbows down and I started praying. And I just begged God to speak to me from his word, you know? And I opened up my eyes sort of, you know, without moving, and, and I'm staring down at the passage, and it was the passage I had read the day before, and I started rereading it. And uh, it was pretty pointed. It was God saying, 
look, I told you to do this yesterday. You haven't done a thing. I need you to do this today, right now. I'm like, oh, (laughs) okay. And off I went and I'm still working on it actually, but at least I started the process. And uh, you know, God's like that. When we're serious about asking him to speak to us, he speaks to us. It's not always appreciated. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's amazing. And I find sometimes when I'm discouraged, I get the most encouragement from God. He speaks to me. But sometimes it's like, get your button gear. Get going, you know. Like, like do what I asked you to do. I asked you. And, you know, the day before I had kind of gone like, oh, yeah, I should do that. And that was the end of it. And now when, I, when I'm seriously asking God, what speak to me, it's just like, boom, you know. Uh, and he spoke to me, and I, I hadn't even read the passage for the day. And that's the way it is with God. He, he wants to have us passionate and serious about his word. And not like it's a little chore that we have to do. And, and so the next thing that everybody said, point number two, is what do you think it would be? Pray. <laughs> you all know it already, right? Pray. And, and I kind of go like, yeah, well, we all know this. We all heard this before. But I want, you to, I want to point out, you know, in James chapter 5, uh, James is talking about, you know, prayer and how powerful prayer can be. And he says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then he uses an example and he says, Elijah was a man just like us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of Jesus Christ and all the miracles he did, I just go like, wow, that's amazing. And when I hear about Elijah and all the miracles he does, I'm just like, that's incredible. But the Bible says he's a man just like all of us. He's, he's just a human being. He's, not, he's no one particularly special. And yet when he prayed... It doesn't rain for three and a half years. And when he prays again, it rains. And when he asked for, for fire, he, did you notice in his prayer, he didn't even ask for fire from heaven? <laughs> he, he didn't ask for fire from heaven. He simply asked that the Lord would glorify himself and that he would show the people who he was and draw their hearts back to him. You know, the, the, you know, it's really interesting. You have all these guys cutting themselves and yelling and screaming at Baal. Your prayers don't need to be some highfalutin, you know, uh, three years of ordination preparation for your prayers. They can just be something simple. Just talking with God, asking him for something. It's not complicated. And Elijah was a man just like us. There's no difference. But one of the things I noticed when you go back into the story is that every time Elijah does something, you know, like when he prayed for, that it wouldn't rain, he's not just praying. He didn't, didn't get up one day and go, oh, I think I should pray it wouldn't rain. The Lord told him to pray not, that it wouldn't rain. The Lord told him to go and meet Ahab. I find it very interesting. You know, we, we tend to think that, oh, after this sermon, I'm going to call down fire from heaven this afternoon. Uh, you know, I'm going to go preach to my, one of my friends and call down fire from heaven. 
Well, guess what? Elijah did all this at the Lord's command. And and the chapter starts with these words. After a long time. Look up 1 Kings chapter 18. First two, three words. After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. This wasn't a weekend seminar that Elijah responded to. This was a whole life where God was preparing him. And, and God told him to pray that it wouldn't rain. And then it didn't rain. That built his faith. God told him to pray that this dead kid would rise from the dead. And he prayed it, and the dead kid got up. So when God says, go and make an altar and I'll send fire down from heaven, guess what Elijah does? <laughs> Let's dump some water on this. <laughs> At the Lord's command, of course. He wasn't just, you know, tempting God. But he has no problem mocking these 850 uh prophets and standing all by himself and saying well this is what god's going to do why because his faith had been built over a long period of time it takes time so this prayer that elijah um that ephesian or james says james says it's the prayer of faith and the prayer of faith he promises will make the sick person well And I believe that when we've heard from God that he's going to do something and then we pray, that something happens. And, you know, Elijah, he's told by God, I'm going to send rain. You know, God says, I'm going to send rain, so pray. So he prays. Guess what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing happens. Elijah prays again. Guess what happens? Nothing. Elijah prays again. He prays again, and a fifth time, and a sixth time. He just keeps praying. Why? Because he knows God's going to do this. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, Jesus said, don't don't babble on like the the pagans do, because they think because of their many words, God's going to hear them. But God already knows what you need. Did God already know what Elijah needed and what Elijah was praying for? Of course he did. So why does Elijah keep praying? Because he hasn't got an answer yet. And because God told him to. I think sometimes we have a mistaken idea of what prayer is. Prayer is part of our relationship with God. And God wants to do mighty works by his children, but he calls us out in faith. And so these prayers that we pray need to be faith-based prayers and passionate prayers. Uh, and we, we need to cry out for God to tell us what to pray. Because the prayer of faith already knows what God's will is. And it prays the prayer of faith along those lines. And so my prayer is often, Lord, what, what should I pray? You know, we, we often have altar calls and people come forward to be prayed for. And, my, and I'm always asking, Lord, how do I pray for this person? You know, and sometimes I kind of cop out and I just say, Lord, what your will be done. But other times, God gives me this amazing feeling that I can just pray a prayer of faith and this person will get well. I wish it would happen more often, but it does happen once in a while. And so God calls us to act on those kinds of prayers. Well, I've not followed my notes at all. I don't know where I am in my sermon. (laughs) It's been fun sharing about God. And so the last thing... 
couple things about this prayer that we can learn from Elijah is, one, it takes a little while. Secondly, it's, um, it's sometimes you have to stand up all by yourself and pray. And so maybe your, your office is all for women's rights and abortion, but you believe in the unborn's rights. And you might be all alone. Uh, maybe your friends are all saying, you know, like at school, they're all saying, oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Isn't it great that everybody gets to express themselves in whatever gender they want and be whatever gender they want and have sex with whatever gender they want? And you are all alone saying, no, there's morality. And morality counts. And God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. And immorality is, is not his plan. And you might be the only one. I remember being the only one one time. And I caved. I'm so ashamed that I caved that day because I was the only one that God wanted to stand up for him. I was in grade 11. I still remember the day I caved in front of my friends. And, and then to be obedient. You know, the first thing God said to, to uh, um, Elijah after he's, after, when it says a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, guess what God told him to do? Go and meet with Ahab. Who's trying to kill all the prophets? Ahab's wife. Who's hell-bent on worshiping Baal? Ahab. Who thinks Elijah is not Israel's number one enemy? Ahab. Really, God? You want me to go meet with him? Haven't you got something better for me to do? And there's some more widows I could visit with, you know, and pray for? No. God says, go meet with Ahab. And off Elijah goes. So obedience and prayer go hand in hand. I want to get to the last thing that all these people said that is required. And that's worship. Worship. I mean, this is all about worship. What, what is an altar for? What is a sacrifice for? It's all about worship. That's what Elijah came there to do on Mount Carmel, to atone for the people's sins and to worship God. And that's what sacrifice is all about. And that's what we are called to do, to worship God. And today, we are going to take communion. And I believe that you can't take this meal together And not bring God's judgment down upon you unless you worship the one who died for you. If you're not in the mood for worshiping the one who died on the cross to pay for your sins, please don't take of this meal. The Bible says that God's judgment will fall on you if you don't discern the Lord's body. And you know what that means to me? It means that we need to understand exactly what Jesus Christ did in order for my sins to be washed away. That's how we discern the body of Christ. This wafer and this grape juice that we drink, these two emblems, they represent Christ's body. And I want to just share with you a little bit. And I want you to worship this man who bent over uh, a post and was chained to the post. And then some Roman soldiers, big, strong, burly guys, took a whip of nine tails, 
with little pieces of bone and metal stuck in that whip. And they whipped it across his back once, twice, three times. And if you've ever watched The Passion of Christ, it'll, it just eats your soul to watch Christ being tortured like this, beaten again and again 39 times. You know, 39 times a cat of nine-tailed nine, it's unbelievable. His back was just torn to shreds. They say that people would die from this beating. And so Christ's life was hanging by a thread. Why? For you and me. Before that, they took their spears and they used the butt end of the spear to, to beat him with it. They stuck a, a crown of thorns on his head. And if you've ever seen these thorns that they would have used in Israel, they're long, sharp thorns. They would have gouged into his skull. And then they, they drove these nails through his hands and through his feet. And you might think, like, oh, that's horrible. But when you really think about it, when you're stretched out like this, what happens when you're on a cross like that is that you... Um, the weight of your body causes your lungs to uh, contract and you're not able to breathe. And so it's, it becomes excruciating, like you're drowning. And the only way to get a breath is to push up on that one nail through both your feet to get a breath. And so when the ex- pain is so excruciating that you can't breathe, you transfer that excruciation to your feet. And when your feet can't handle the excruciating pain that you're feeling at that point, you slump back down until your lungs cannot handle the excruciating pain that you're feeling there. And this process goes over and over and over and over. And for some people, it would last days. And that's why they would actually break the legs of the people hanging on the cross so that the suffering would be over that same day. Uh, this is what Christ did for us. Can you worship someone like that who did that for you, for me? Who go through that kind of torture for us? This is what it means to worship. I know on Sundays we rejoice that Jesus Christ died for us and it's wonderful to dance and have joy before the Lord and shout triumphantly before the Lord. But it also means to worship the one who loved you so much that he would die in such a way to bring you into his family. And it just humbles me. I remember one time I was taking communion and one of the communion bread pieces fell to the floor and I said oh I'll I'll pick that up later and God spoke to me he said no that's that's for you I was trampled into the ground for you pick that up and eat it it's me broken for you and I was overwhelmed this is the kind of worship that we need to come to during communion it's to worship Christ And let me tell you, when you read your Bible like that, and when you pray like that, and when you worship in truth and in spirit like that, 
God's going to set a fire in you that will burn like crazy. This is the groundwork, my friends. It's the groundwork for, for, for experiencing God. It's putting the wood on the altar for God to burn. If there's nothing there, what's he going to burn? 